Well, welcome to Sovereign Grace Baptist Church. Um, glad to see everybody here. Um, it's a beautiful Sunday morning, um, and it's just great to see everyone's faces here, here today. If you will, please turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 17. We will be continuing in this wonderful gospel as we have for, for a while now, for about two years. We've, last week we wrapped up chapter 16 and the, uh, the events that occurred in Caesarea Philippi, um, with, uh, with Jesus and his disciples and these, these revelations of who Jesus is. If you remember chapter 16, there were several points in that chapter where Matthew was showing us, uh, divine revelation of who Jesus is. Um, and even Peter's understanding in chapter six, uh, 16, verse 16, where Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. So this theme of chapter 16 of divine revelation is now going to segue into chapter 17 as we begin to look at the transfiguration of our Lord on the mountain. Now, Matthew takes us to the pivotal revelation here of Jesus's glory as the son of God. I mean, the fulfillment of God's covenants with Adam and with Moses and with Israel and with David and even the proclamations of the prophets. In this passage, Jesus is transfigured from the appearance of a normal man to the appearance of divine glory. God the Father has a purpose in this moment. It's, an, it's another moment of divine revelation of our Savior. Now, now, what we're going to see in this encounter of chapter 16 between Jesus' disciples as they encounter Elijah and Moses and even the voice from the Father in heaven, um, this is now showing us something important about Jesus. Now, now, even this event in, in verse 9 was called a vision. Yet this vision is much more than an effect on the imagination. It was not just something that the disciples imagined that occurred. There's something very real in this passage that is so real that we cannot fathom the significance of the divine revelation in this transfiguration of our Lord. I mean, there, there are three scenes in this passage, uh, verses 1 through 13. And we're going to actually take three weeks in this passage of, ja of Matthew 17, verses 1 through 13. The entire transfiguration narrative is going to take us about three weeks. We're going to look at verses 1 through 8 today, and then we'll look at the second scene next week, verses 9 through 13, as Jesus interacts with Peter and his en engagement here. And then the last scene, verses 9 through 13, uh, we'll, we'll wrap all of this up in the week following. So, so if you're able to stand, would you please stand in reverence for the reading of God's word? And I'd like for us to read all of this uh, scene of the transfiguration, all 13 verses today, but our focus is going to be just on the first eight verses, okay? Beginning in verse 1. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah." He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. 
When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Verse 9, And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Mm. Pray with me, please. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for your goodness. You have shown us what we cannot see by ourselves. And in, your, in, the, gospel, in the Matthew's gospel, you have blessed us, Father, with a, a narrative of a divine moment that shows us more of Jesus's true nature than we can see for ourselves. And so, God, I thank you for this blessing. I thank you for this gift. And I pray, God, this morning you would use this time for your glory. I pray that you would speak to us all as we navigate through this passage. Lord, use this time to show us how we see Christ, how we see your Son. Is it in alignment with what you have shown us? Are we even attentive and sensitive to your your revelation of your Son? God, bless us this morning through your word. Show us through your word. Reveal to us in your word the true nature of your Son and his glory. And please, dear God, help us remove whatever barriers are blocking our vision of your Son. We need you this morning. So, Lord, dear, please let this be your time. Please speak to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, there's a laughable stereotype in cartoons and literature. I don't know if you've seen this over the years, but think about this. We see this in cartoons a lot, and what comes to my mind is the old comic strip B.C., this was a common, uh, a, a common story in BC that the jokes would be stere- set around this stereotype of uh, someone climbing a mountain trying to find an old wise sage. Even many religious traditions, these pagan religious traditions, will actually encourage pilgrimage of a lost soul, a man who is searching for the meaning of life. And so this carries over into some of the cartoons that we've seen, literature, we read about this. And this, this man who is lost, who is searching for the meaning meaning of life, will climb a rugged mountain looking for this wise old man, a man living in a cave, contemplating the meaning of life. And if we just find this old man, we'll have all the answers we're looking for. And here's the, here's the stereotype and the, the laughter of this. This pitiful man finally reaches the top of the mountain to receive one word of wisdom that is to change his life forever. And all too often, he's disappointed in the answer. I don't know if any of you have ever done this. You've, you've climbed a mountaintop trying to find serenity and peace. I mean, I think there's, there's, there's validity in that. I do that. I enjoy being out in nature, especially this time of year. Um, and, and being on top of a mountain, there's something about stopping at a top of a mountain, looking out over uh, the countryside and the mountain ranges where there's something there that, that kind of draws you closer to God's presence, doesn't it? 
So there's, there's something there about being on a mountain and there's something there about getting away from things. And that's what Jesus does here in chapter 17, verse one. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. Now, some of the greatest revelation in scripture occurred on mountaintops. Think about this. Moses received the Mosaic law at Mount Sinai. The kingdom of heaven is revealed on a mountaintop in where in Matthew chapter 5 through 7, where Jesus gives the Sermon on the Mount. Even Jesus' great commission of his church to proclaim the gospel and evangelize at the end of Matthew's gospel in chapter 28 occurred on a mountain as he ascends into heaven. And now here in the middle of the gospel in chapter 17, we see Jesus' transfiguration occurring on the mountain. So there's something significant about a mountaintop. In this verse, verse 1, Jesus takes three of his closest disciples, his inner circle within the 12, Peter, James, and John. He takes them to a high mountain. And here Jesus wants to reveal something to them, something that is personal, something that is intimate, but more so something that is divine. I mean, Jesus wants to introduce them to some close friends and wants these three to see who Jesus is in a perspective that transcends the physical world. And we look here at the beginning of verse one and after six days, I mean, this transfiguration narrative occurs in, in all three, in three of the four gospels, Matthew chapter 17, Mark chapter nine and Luke chapter nine, all focus on this and they all point to this timeline of around six days after the after what happened in Caesarea Philippi and and transitioning from the the last teaching that Jesus gave of taking up the cross and following him now John's gospel focuses entirely on Jesus's divinity apart from the synoptic gospels the synoptics are Matthew Mark and Luke and John tends to be kind of outside of those three, but and John's gospel does not share this transfiguration narrative. Perhaps John the apostle, who was actually at this moment with Jesus on the mountain, right, felt it unnecessary to retell this private moment, but instead focused on Jesus's life as a revelation enough of his divinity. I mean, John's gospel emphasizes this. That's the seems to be the theme. I mean, these three men, Peter, James, and John, all referred to this transfiguration moment throughout their ministries. Peter mentions this in his first epistle, uh, Peter uh, chapter 1, verses 16 through 18, and John mentions this witness in his first epistle, 1 John 1, 1 through 5. Now, now, Johannine theology, this is the, the, the gospel of John and the, and the three letters of John and even Revelation. We call this Johannine theology in contrast to Paul, uh, called Pauline theology. Now, now, John emphasizes the theme of the light in all of his work. And this is what the experience was on the moment of Jesus's transfiguration. So perhaps this is why John does not see the need to share the details of this story because he carries the overarching theme of light that he witnessed here on the transfiguration through everything he wrote. The important detail here, verse one, where it says of six days in this story is literally an emphasis on the preparation for a holy event. Remember, creation took six days and then the Sabbath. Moses waited six days on Sinai for the glory of the Lord, followed by another six-day interval when Moses delivers something special to God's people, the Ten Commandments. There was a six-day interval there. 
So when we see here in Matthew 17, verse 1, and after six days, I think Matthew is using some literary license here to kind of lead us up to a holy event. But here's something unique. In Luke's account of this transfiguration, this is a chapter 9, verse 28 of Luke's gospel, he mentions something. He doesn't say six days. He says about eight days after the events in Caesarea Philippi. So some may look at Matthew's account and Mark's account where it says after six days and contrast that with Luke's account where he says about eight days. Let me, let me help you understand here that that's not a conflict. I mean, this is an example in the ancient literature tradition that the Bible was written in. And the emphasis in lit- ancient literature was not necessarily in the literal accounting of details, but instead there was an emphasis on the approximation of the spirit of an event. And that was more valid than any other literal recording. Okay. Cause that, so that's what we're seeing here between Matthew, Mark, and Luke. When you see uh, after six days, that's not necessarily a literal six days, just like about eight days after is not a literal eight days. So this after six days and about eight days that you can see here that that's generally uh, the same time period. Okay. So let's, let's look here in verse two. And he was transfigured before them. This is once they get to the mountaintop. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. Matthew shares here the transfiguration of our Lord, a a transformation of how the disciples with him saw Jesus. I mean, it's not that Jesus, his physical form changed on this mountain, because that would be transformed before them. The language here is transfigured. It's more that the true image of the Son of God came out from behind a veil or something that was blocking the true vision. It was as if the eyes were blind and could not see the true nature of Jesus's glory. So that's that's why the language here is he was transfigured before them. I mean, the eyes of sinful humanity are blind to the true glory of our Father. Likewise, the sinful nature of humanity will be blinding thus from seeing the true nature of Christ. So that's what this event is. Now, how do we understand this idea of transfiguring? Uh, The Apostle Paul helps us in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12. Here's what he says. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So there, Paul is helping us see that in in this world, in this earthly life that we live in, our vision of the glory of God is at best a reflection or looking at a mirror darkly is what the King James says. That refers to the old type of mirrors in the ancient world that were not as polished and, and clear as ours are today. It would be very vague, looking through something very, very vague and blurry. Now, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul helps us see this even deeper. Talking about those who were held to the Mosaic law and actually held and looked to the Mosaic law as as something that was trustworthy, and they depended more on that than they did Christ. Here's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. And we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit." 
See here, he, Paul is showing that even that those of us who are in Christ, God's people, his, his, his church, we in Christ, we are physically being transformed. We're actually spiritually being transformed from a sinful fallen creature into the image of Christ. And we'll be able to see the glory and be a participate in that glory. See, Jesus is not a, a, a man who needs to be transformed. He is not having to change from a sinful form into a glorious form. He is glorious. And what is happening here, he is being transfigured before these men. But let, but lest we forget that Jesus was a man, let's remember Jesus was a man. This is not an image here on the mountain of transfiguration where Jesus is shown to be his true spirit. That's, he's, he's not revealed in there here as a, as a ghost. He, he is literally a man here. But this transfiguration occurred only here in this private moment with his inner circle of three. And it's the only moment in his earthly ministry where Jesus's deity, his divine nature is made clear. Even in his resurrection, Jesus's identity was ambiguous to his disciples. They didn't clearly see him at first. Only here on the Mount of Transfiguration is his deity made gloriously clear. Nowhere else in the Gospels does Jesus shine and glow. Where it says here in in verse 2, his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. Jesus' shining face means that Jesus' person is the light by which we navigate this fallen, dark world. I mean, his radiant clothes are described the same way when Jesus stands by the judgment seat on the day of the Lord. This is a common biblical image here. Now, how did Moses appear when he came down from Mount Sinai after being in God's presence? Exodus chapter 34, verse 29 tells us this. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. So when we are in God's presence, if, if we were blessed to be in God's presence the way Jesus is and way, the way Moses was blessed to be, we too would have a, a shining de- demeanor. Our skin would literally shine and glow for all to see. And then they would have to hide from it because God's glory is so overwhelming. So we see this throughout scripture just a few times. Moses experienced this and Jesus is experiencing this where, where in the glory of God shines from them. So now let's drop down to verse three. After this moment of transfiguration, as he's shining like the sun and his clothes become white as light, verse three, and behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Hmm. Now, now, okay, now, now, two long gone great men of God appeared in this moment, appeared to them and talked with him. They were talking to Jesus, but they appeared to everyone present. Peter, James, and John are blessed to see Moses and Elijah, two great prophets and leaders of God. Both of these men prophesied, and and both of them carried the covenant that pointed to Christ, the Messiah. Now these men who stood there before Jesus' inner circle of three are talking to Jesus. And these three men, Peter, James, and John, they witness Elijah and Moses speaking to their master, Jesus Christ. Now, the traditional interpretation of this verse sees Moses and Elijah as representative of the law and of the prophets, respectively. I mean, I can see that. Moses, we we connect Moses with God's law. We connect Elijah as the greatest of all prophets. 
And yes, they are here in this vein, but the traditional interpretation of this verse is more of an allegory, right? Talking with him is seen in traditional interpretations as that the Old Testament and the New Testament are friends all pointing to Christ. All of that is very true. Absolutely, that's true. I mean, but the traditional interpretation of this text has been allegorical. St. Augustine says this, Moses and Elijah, that is the law and the prophets, what avail they except they converse with the Lord, except they give witness to the Lord? Who would read the law and the prophets? Allegory has been traditionally applied to this text, but I think something more important plays out here in verses 2 and 3. I mean, Moses, Elijah, and Jesus talked to one another. Yes, Moses was given the law. Yes, Elijah was given prophecy. But Jesus is the Lord of both Moses and Elijah. Jesus has all authority over the law, and he has all authority over the prophets. It's important to emphasize this authority as we look through this passage in Matthew 17, lest we confuse this scene as if Moses and Elijah were necessary to confirm Jesus' identity. That's the traditional interpretation. Moses and Elijah had to confirm to the disciples who Jesus was. But think about this. Jesus needs no confirmation. That's why I think that traditional interpretation of this text is is a little bit flawed. I mean, Jesus is the son of the living God. He is the Christ who is part of the giving of the law of Moses and the speaking through the prophets. Jesus needs no confirmation. He has authority over the law and the prophets. He has authority over Moses and Elijah. I think that's an important takeaway here. Now, let's drop down from verse 3 to verse 8 because I want to bring out a point here. Let's look here in verse 8. I think verse 8 emphasizes Christ's authority over this confirmation of his identity in this passage. When we see here in verse 8, And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. They saw no one but Jesus alone. I mean, remember the idea of the solus Christus back in in Matthew 16? I mean, here the solus Christus is emphasized. Christ alone stands on this mountain with his inner circle of three. It was not as if these men experienced a bad dream. One might think this when Jesus tells them in verse 9, tell no one the vision. Instead, the encounter with Moses and Elijah and Jesus was very real. Because as these men were terrified from the voice that's coming from the cloud that surrounds them, Jesus gives them compassion. And when they look up, they saw no one but Jesus only. And that's the point of this transfiguration narrative. We see no one but Jesus only. And the only way to see Jesus this way is through the clear vision of his glory that overwhelms our sinful nature and lifts the dark veil and allows us to see him more clearly. And it was Jesus alone who was transfigured on this mountain. Not Moses, not Elijah, not Peter, not James, not John. It was Jesus alone who the voice praises. So let's take a look here at verse 5 and, and understand this voice. He was still, this, this is, this is Peter here. And verse 4, as Peter is telling Jesus and he's waxing eloquently that he wants to build monuments to, G, to Moses and Elijah and, and Jesus. And verse 5, 
He was still speaking. This is Peter. He's still running his mouth, talking and talking. He was still speaking when behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. So verse five again echoes the emphasis of Jesus alone is the point of this transfiguration. This bright cloud that shows up interrupts Peter's praise. And who was Peter praising in verse four? He wasn't praising Jesus alone. He was praising Elijah and Moses and equalizing Jesus with these great men of old. I mean, to emphasize who Peter was to praise here is the point. Likewise, the interpretation or the interruption of this bright cloud reminds us that who it is that we praise. I mean, aren't we guilty, church, of praising anything and anyone apart from Christ or in addition to Christ? We, we, we add appendages to Christ's praise. No, we are to praise Christ alone. We are to listen to Jesus alone, period. That's what we see here in verse five. Listen to him. But notice here, this bright cloud overshadowed them. I mean, God was not waiting for Peter to finish his grand speech. God had something to say. I mean, the point of this transfiguration moment was that Jesus is who he is, and he is much more divine than his fallen world is able to see. The voice from heaven means one thing. When this voice of heaven comes out of the cloud, the cloud that overwhelms them. The voice says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. It means that the most important and the single focus of the God, the father, this is his voice speaking. God, the father is saying to his church and to these disciples and to the world to know is all that we have in Jesus Christ is all that we need and should have. Why? Because the voice of God interrupts Peter who wants to build monuments to men. No monuments, no great temples overshadow Christ Jesus and no monuments and no temples should ever take the place of the importance of Jesus Christ, the son of God, the Christ, the Messiah who saves us all. I mean, only Jesus Christ is important here. Why? Because God, the father, the creator says so. That's what we see here in verse five. This is his most important revelation. This is his most important gift that the idea of divine revelation about who Christ is carries over here in this story. And it's emphasized more so here with a voice that speaks directly to Peter, James and John and tells them to listen to his son. I mean, the voice means that God wants his church to revere his son more than any other person, any other prophet, any other great man of God, more than any other project, more than any other festival, more than any other program or cause, no other mission effort, no other benevolent cause. None of that is as important or should replace or overshadow Christ Jesus himself. That's why Christ Jesus here, he was transfigured before his disciples to give them a glimpse of his true glory because nothing can measure up to that. Now, how do we understand this as we close? I think the Apostle Paul helps us see the importance of God's revelation to us and the fullness and his pleasure in his son, Jesus Christ. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, the Apostle Paul echoes what, is being taught here in, in, in revelation moments like this on the Mount of Transfiguration. 
Verse 15 of Colossians 1. He, being Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Verse 18, And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. And if you're reading this, underline verses 19 through 20, because this really wraps up and helps us see exactly what this transfiguration is doing. Verse 19, For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. You see, God the Father was pleased to dwell in His Son. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus shows us exactly who God the Father is. The ultimate divine revelation is Jesus Christ Himself. And on this Mount of Transfiguration, he he, He transfigures. In other words, a veil is lifted for the men to see a true glory that Jesus possesses that they could not see in sinful means. And through that, we see, we see God the Father. We see His pleasure. And it is through this that we are reconciled. All of fallen creation, all of sinful humanity is reconciled through this wonderful, glorious revelation. And there is peace here in, in this. So how do we walk away from this text? Let me encourage us all to really reflect as we study and and look through Matthew 17, how do we see Jesus Christ? Honestly, let's be honest with ourselves. Let's ask for God's help here. Let's ask the Holy Spirit to unveil within our hearts what it is that we may be holding on to that blocks our true vision of Christ. Because Jesus wants to be open with us. He wants to reveal to us our sin, He wants to reveal to us His true glory, and He wants to reveal to us His truth of salvation that rescues us from that that slavery to sin. How do we see Christ? Do we see Him as the glorious Son of God that He is? Or do we have an imagined vision of who He should be? I don't know. I'm going to ask us all, and even myself, I mean, as I'm studying this, I'm doing the same thing. I'm really wrestling and meditating and praying through, how do I truly see Christ? Am I seeing Christ in His full glory? Do you see Him in His full glory? We all wrestle with this. If we take nothing else from this passage, just remember that it is Christ alone who stands on this mountain with His three Even though Moses and Elijah are there, in the end, it is Christ alone who is with them. Moses and Elijah can't save us. Christ alone can. And so he stands there with his three and he gives them comfort. And we'll see, we're going to look at a little bit more of this next week. He gives them compassion and comfort in their fear and their terror to show them that the glory of God is with them. Let's close in prayer. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for your word. 
Father God, we, we ask and we, we pray that you would reveal to us our status before your holiness. Reveal to us, Father, exactly who your Son, Jesus Christ, is. We, we, we must, we, we need this. Reveal to us through your word, through scripture, who Jesus is. Reveal to us, Father, even in our, our spirit nature, in our, in our hearts, exactly who Jesus is. Show us, Father, his compassion. Show us his love because we are blind to that apart from your grace. And so God, I do pray for your help here. I pray for your mercy. Walk through your your scriptures with us. Walk through your word with us and show us the true glory of your son. And all of this we thank you and we pray in the name of Jesus himself. Amen.